0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello,
0: everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlind, and I'm your host, And today our guest is Ken Carpenter, PhD. He is co-author of the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. And he's the Director of Training for the Center for Motivation and Change, CMS and CMC Foundation for Change. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and research scientist and has held academic and research science positions at New York based universities and state agencies. So today, Ken is going to talk directly about family and friends dealing with loved ones who are struggling with addiction and why support, kindness, and compassion are the most effective yet often least utilized forms of treatments. Ken talks about how studies find that families are the leading cause of lasting change and using skills like motivational interviewing and active listening. And really changing your perspective from the top down can help open communication, with loved ones who may be struggling with addiction. And with that communication comes the possibility of change. So before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, don't forget, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you use or even write a review in iTunes. I really do appreciate that. I do read them. They mean a lot to me and they do help the podcast get found by others. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, stay tuned for this episode. Everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Ken Carpenter, and we're going to talk about his book, Beyond Addiction, the workbook for families and friends of people who are struggling with addiction. Ken, why don't you introduce yourself and and we're going to jump in and talk about that topic, which I think is so important.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Dwayne. And again, I always just appreciate having a uh, platform to talk with uh kindred spirits and souls here and getting word out of of the work we're doing. I'm a psychologist by training, just a little bit about myself and have been oh, I don't know, in the field for <laughs> for over 25 years in different ways and just have worn different hats uh both being clinical end, research end uh and then combining the both. So uh Yeah, I spent a bunch of time doing kind of clinical trials and trying to help uh, develop and understand ways of helping individuals looking to make changes around their substance use. That was a pretty cool experience in the sense of just working with a lot of different colleagues trying to understand the social, psychological, and biological scaffolding that can help people
0: make change. The psychology of change, right? How do we change, which is a huge topic in and of itself. So I really want to just jump right into your book. I'm going to get the title of your book accurate. The Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. And why I was excited to have you on the podcast is because I think this is such an important topic. So many loved ones see the, the people they care about suffering from addiction and all the tragedy that comes with that and they feel so lost and alone so I want to jump into that and we can talk about all of your experience and how you're bringing that to this area because I think as I was saying earlier it's just so needed in in this addiction crisis
1: yeah, the, uh, you know, my kind of way of of getting into it is it w- was really interesting. I mean, I spent a lot of my time working with those individuals, looking to make change. That that was my focus, kind of sitting with them and thinking about the process. And one thing I didn't have total access to was the bigger context of their life, also, which is the family members, their loved ones, the ones that were kind of on the front line, just seeing the struggles and and the challenges their loved one was having, but often they were kind of always kept in the background. And yeah, it was, I would say eye-opening is when I started to collaborate with individuals who really were champions for families, and it was often the family members that were calling up, even in the clinical work, hey, I see my loved one struggling. They're not sure they really want to change, but what can I do? So, Often it was like, "Well, you have to get them to the call for help, and that was it, you know, but in the meantime, families were there trying to support and figure this really challenging terrain out if they had the courage to reach out and often it was not their experience too, which was you know the whole idea of well shame and stigma that came along with families knowing they had a loved one struggling, but families felt all they could do was go underground because not only did they not have a compass they felt uh judged by being in the situation in the first place
0: yeah absolutely stigmatized and you know told that they maybe they did something wrong as a parent and so all that shame just keeps everybody from connecting and i would imagine too you know a lot of times the old adage was well if the addict isn't reaching out for help they just haven't hit bottom yet and i don't agree with that statement but you know they hear that and then they're lost and and struggling
1: yeah and often that advice was kind of that you know it's it's interesting why the pain version of motivation is always what is advocated which is yeah. you know well just step back or it, when they experience enough pain they're going to want to make change so your role is to make sure they experience that either by letting it happen on its own or you know to be tough and 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 stand your ground. And for so many people, it was the very opposite of what they were pulled to do, which is, I love this person. Yeah, I value them. And how can we use our relationship in a way that would really be supportive and open doors, open possibility, instead of being told the only way you can help is to leave your values at the door. You have to become the type of person you don't want to be for the good of your loved one. And it was a hard message and often still is the message that families receive.
0: Right. So the, this is very opposite of that or, or very different from that old kind of paradigm of like pain is the only thing that's going to motivate a person. It's the only thing we can use to really get somebody to change. And what you're saying is that maybe that's not really the case.
1: Yeah, that, that other side of, of the kind of coin there, which is, uh, you know, The long journey of of making change, it comes from having hope, having a vision that you can do it, feel like in the tough parts of the journey, there are people in your corner that can encourage you to stay with it, that help you or remind you of what's the real important things in your life that you might have lost connection to. And how to move towards that, so it's a different kind of paradigm. It's saying that you know motivation doesn't always have to come from pain but from hope from from support, from envisioning a better way of life that that is just as an important framework to bring into play when we think about helping loved ones than the other narratives
0: absolutely so. I'd be curious to understand your journey of how you kind of discovered this or, or not discovered it. I mean, but for your own experience of seeing that this, this other way of helping people through kindness, through compassion, through the system itself kind of came to be for you.
1: You no, know, I, I think my first foray into that, and the, there's so much messaging out there, and so so many different ways you, you're given a rule of this is the way you have to be as a as a helper. It was my run in with motivational interviewing way back when there was this idea of well, you know, really what you're doing is you're having conversations with people, and you know, from that research was that. Conversations can be very, very inspiring. So it's how you're relating to an individual, how you're talking about change, how you're seeing them, which really makes a big difference in how people feel that they can make change, want to make change, and, and motivational interviewing first opened my eyes to the power of relationships. It's not just the knowledge you have, but it's how you're relating with people in the context that is the real kind of important part, and uh, at least it gave you permission to to entertain that and, and you know, embrace it.
0: Can you talk a little bit for people who are listening? They, they may hear this term motivational interviewing, and have no idea what that means and what that actually is and why that intervention can be so helpful.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's used a lot, but I... I... The real perspective, I think, grew out of the thought that, you know, we can get a hundred counselors. I mean, they didn't take a hundred, but there were studies saying all these counselors know the same. Their knowledge is exactly the same. Yet, why are some people making changes with some counselors and other counselors don't seem to have that same effect? It can't be their knowledge. So they lifted the hood and they were really paying attention to how are people talking about change? And they were really starting to find that the counselors in which people were making change were, were kind of talking and, and adopting a spirit and a way of being with people that was collaborative, compassionate, that that allowed people to see themselves and their desires through conversations. And that that was really distinguishing change. So Bill Miller really tried and his colleague, Steve Rolnick, tried to say, well, why don't if we pull all that together and try to help other counselors learn how to adopt this style and motivational interviewing really is a style of being with people and learning to use conversations in a nuanced, helpful way. Because ultimately, it's only words that we have as our primary tool.
0: Yes, definitely. And that relationship is so critical for that change. I love there's another person out there, Scott Miller, and his research about effective therapy. And one of the things that he talks about that shows if a therapist or counselor or coach is going to be helpful, it's that primary relationship that is so key to helping people change where they feel safe, they feel supported, they feel heard and understood, that in of itself can can help people make change.
1: Totally. And I love the, you know, that spotlight you put on the relationship, because even for all the advice that's out there, helpful, unhelpful, the common denominator is that it's always Suggestions on how do you use your relationship to be helpful for someone? So you can't get around the idea that change happens in the context of relationships. And so if that's the case, then it's really this invitation to think about what am I bringing to the relationship? What's the tone or texture of the relationship that's going to make it most helpful for individuals when they're doing this hard thing of change?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how do family members start to do this for loved ones who may be stuck in the grips of addiction? How, how do they start taking this knowledge and start to move forward to to do this? And, and what might that look like?
1: Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing, even when we've been talking about all all these textbooks that sit on shelves for practitioners to learn how to do motion, motivational interviewing or practitioners to be this way. And they never get off the shelves and out into the world because to your point on relationships... <laughs> You know, relationships also occur outside of clinical offices. And then the most important relationships are the ones that people have in the day in and day out interactions of their lives, which bring families in. So if we can think that, well, you know, family relationships are important, family interactions, family members can learn how to navigate these relationships in ways that would be helpful. It doesn't just have to be special clinical war. So we were trying to bridge that, which is how do you help family members learn the conversational and relational skills of that, you know, is also used in motivational interviewing? What does it mean to be in a helping role? You know, what are the important ingredients that we can help family members think about and give a compass to practice? as they're trying to bring this in and and help their loved ones who they see struggling.
0: Yeah, because a lot of the times, this is stuff that we're not taught unless we're in the helping profession, learning how to have active listening, practicing active listening practice, practicing motivational interviewing. Most of us, or if we're not in the helping profession, don't have any exposure to that. So we fall back on to old ways of being and kind of beat the same drum and it doesn't change the music.
1: Right, right. And then often people think, well, I just have to turn up the volume, right? And <laughs> let me bang right. the drum harder. If I make it loud enough, it will work. And it, logically, I certainly as human beings, we can really think in that way. But often it means maybe I have to put down this particular drum. But if I'm asked to put it down, you know, what other instruments are there to to bring into play that that perhaps can be heard differently and in a way that would be helpful. And and you're right. We don't learn that. You know, Often it's, you're kind of out there fumbling around on your own to try to figure out what's the best way, or you're being instructed about banging drums louder, or you have to be more forceful and uh, pulls you further away from what we know to be helpful.
0: Yeah, what are some of the tools from your workbook that you give some of these families besides motivational interviewing that kind of help them start to maybe see this in a different way, see uh, the way in which they can they can be supportive and helpful?
1: Yeah, we kind of you know think about the set of lenses we're we're handing over to families, and we call it kind of housed in this invitation to change model. It's really just three pillars, really. One is the first step, which is when you're looking and trying to understand your loved one, what understandings would help you and would make uh, open up some possibilities of, of perhaps stepping into a helping, supportive role differently than what you've heard before. So we really try to help invite people to be more curious, that all behaviors make sense, that at their core... Behaviors serve a purpose for someone. So we don't have to agree with it. We don't always have to say, I would do the same behavior. But can I understand how it's being helpful to you, even when things seem so confusing or negative, that can I still understand why you're holding on to it? You know, why is it important? So that first step is that idea of, you know, how do you start to open that up and take that stance? In your interactions with your loved one,
0: yeah, I was going to say it's almost like stepping back and just practicing that empathy piece of just being there with curiosity and non judgment, which would be hard to do as a family member too. I mean, that would be challenging because you're watching your loved one hurt themselves, but still being able to do that and create that space, I, I think, would be you know an incredibly important first step.
1: Totally. Like you said, nothing about it would say, oh, this is always going to be an easy thing. And and often it's hard to see your loved one hurting and struggling. And it's an interesting first step. And we've had families kind of talk about, I've never asked my loved one what they got from it. That was just never part of our conversation. And we were in a conversation and I asked my loved one, well, what do you like about it? And I felt scared to ask that. But having asked that, I now see and understand them in ways I never imagined. I never knew what was actually going on inside their skin. This is the first time I was able to do that. And to your point, now I can at least see their behavior a little differently than the way I was viewing it before, which guided how I responded to them. So it does increase empathy. There's a chance for that, or at least changes the tone of conversations. Because if I ask you to change, and this is what we say, if we're inviting and I'm thinking you're moving in that direction, you're giving something up. And you're giving something up that has been useful. But now I can understand what you're having to give up To make this change. And that's kind of the two other things that we kind of highlight for families, which is if your loved one's giving up something that in some ways has been useful, ambivalence can be a normal part of the process. And that doesn't mean it's failure. It doesn't mean that change isn't happening. But it can be an expected part that there may be a tug of war going on. And in one moment, your loved one wants to change. And in another moment, they're holding on to the old behavior. And It's not denial. It's not somehow they're lying. It's this thing we're saying is ambivalence. That comes from giving up something that's been useful. And everybody goes about that differently. So one size doesn't fit all. Each person is going to look different in stepping away and in their process. So that's that first pillar of understanding that we try to uh, walk families through to think about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the stages of change to understand those as concepts to kind of be able to put all of this in that perspective of how do we change as human beings what are the stages that we go through to to make that change and having that knowledge just being able to see that that this is like part of the first step that this is part of the process you know we can kind of s- step back and stop you know I guess beating that drum super loud that isn't really effective anyway
1: Right, and that's stressful, right? That's you know, if I'm beating louder and louder, and I'm noticing my arms are starting to hurt, and I'm getting frustrated because I I, I think I've I've made it as loud as possible. That idea of as a helper, this is going to have impacts on me, and I have my own feelings about this, and my own emotions, and my own values, and I'm dealing with the judgments that my, either my own mind is telling me about how I. Could have failed in my role. Why is my loved one struggling this way? So, that second pillar really is the key ingredient is a help you can't subtract yourself out. How can you bring awareness of yourself and keep yourself part of the picture here and just acknowledge that this is hard?
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, and uh, it's not easy. And how can you take care of yourself so that you can stay centered or attached? to what's important to you as a parent or a spouse and your values as you're helping your loved
0: one? Yeah, definitely. And and that that leads to my next question. I was as you were talking, I was thinking about is, you know, as a loved one who is witnessing this, being able to have boundaries at the same time around certain behaviors that are just maybe just not appropriate that you just can't support how do you keep those boundaries yourself as a family member and also be caring and kind and and that can be so challenging as well
1: totally and again you know it, it's not an easy switch to throw one one frame that we might bring in when we even think about boundaries is kind of two ways that that we think about it i could think about boundaries as trying coming from a place of telling you to stop or making your behaviors decrease. Uh, We can also think of boundaries as coming back from a place of, what do I value? Let me first connect with what's important to me. What are the values that I look for in my interactions? And how can I communicate the values, be it tone of conversations, behaviors, and let my loved one know, these are my values and i'm going to respond to your behaviours in a certain way based on my values and it makes limit setting linked more about values more about how you want these interactions to be and how you're going to respond to what you experience
0: can you give us an kind of a concrete example so people could kind of know see it in like a practical way what you're describing
1: Sure, maybe someone says, you know, before before I thought about this, I just I wouldn't talk to my loved one, or every conversation we had got into a, an, an argument. They just weren't listening to me, and and they're not, and I would get so angry. And then when we came back and said, okay, let's just think about how do you want to be in these interactions. That's something you do have some control over. How do you want to be seen when you step into these? What's a value? And some people will say, well, you know, ultimately as a parent or a loved one, I value patience. I value respect. I value caringness. Okay. So that's, that's the value. So let's think about how do you bring those into sometimes these difficult interactions, these interactions with your loved ones. So if we think about in terms of, well, I value respect, I could set a boundary in the sense that I I really value respectful interactions. You're yelling at me right now. The tone or voice or you're cursing at me in your behavior. That for me is a red light. So when we get to that point, I'm going to step out of this conversation. I'm taking a timeout. I'm going to not engage with you when we're doing that because I respect. However, if we can come back to this and you're respectful and use a different tone, maybe we can come back. So well, someone would say, is that setting boundaries? Sure. Because what I'm letting my loved one know is that the tone of the conversation is a boundary for me. Cause I respect respectful interaction. I'm going to bring that to this conversation. I'm going to try. If you're not reciprocating, I'm going to step out because that's a value of mine. So in a sense, I'm setting a boundary or a limit to our conversations, but it's coming from a place of values and what I want to bring in.
0: And it creates a completely different tone for the old system or the old style. It starts to create a different way of interacting that. I think then has the possibility to lead to new ways of being or new ways of being in the in the relationship. It brings about new possibilities
1: totally, and I think that's the key word right it brings it opens up possibilities that perhaps in the past those doors closed, and that could be we can't even talk anymore. Our conversations are just red lights right out of the gate. However, if it brings a different tone, I might open up some future conversations, that can be very helpful here. And if I value a relationship, it's also preserving that I can still step into this really tough stuff in a way that honors the way I want to be. Yeah. yeah. not have to drift from that.
0: And it's practical things that you can do. Like you can change your behavior. You can, you can look at your value system and say, wait a minute, this is not how I want to be. What is my? How is my behavior going to reflect this value system? And I, I think that uh, you know, when we're heated and we're we're emotional, sometimes our values so easily can just go out the window because we just we're in a state of crisis, and you know, our uh, primal brain just kind of takes over, and we end up either saying things we don't want to say or go against our own values easily.
1: Right. And that's such a double whammy, right? It's not only am I really struggling here, the situation in my house is really hard. It's not the way I want it to be. And then in those moments where I sit with myself, the judgment voice in my head likes to revisit all the ways that I've acted that aren't the person that I would like to be here. So there's just that added weight to, like you said, drifting away. And Yeah, we're humans, you know, and and emotions and and the stress all can impact. So that idea of awareness and practice um, is critically important, you know, and that is helping if I'm able to increase my awareness of, of my own emotional temperature in the moment. That is helping because perhaps this isn't the time to do this. I need to step back for a moment because I realize I'm not in a great space for this particular conversation at this particular time.
0: Absolutely. I think that's, that's really well said. So as we keep going forward, you're mentioning these three pillars. What's the next one?
1: Then uh, the next pillar is, you know, if, if we're approaching it with a different set of lenses and understanding and, and, and again, highlighting, like you said, bringing empathy in, I, I'm seeing you a little different. I'm trying to understand you differently and the challenges of change. And I'm practicing my own, um, awareness and, and connecting to my values. And another piece of that is just self-compassion that, you know, no one's born perfect in any of this. So can we at least allow for some of the imperfections that go along with trying to help under really difficult situations? And it's all practice. We're, as you said, we're not given all that. So even being self-compassionate is a practice. It doesn't come readily easily to many of us as human beings, you know? yeah. But if those are being practiced, then when I start to implement communication skills or behavioral strategies, they're kind of couched differently than if that's, if I'm doing it from a place of anger or upset or not understanding. So, you know, the, the evidence based treatments out there that use positive reinforcement, and even when we talk about limit setting or stepping back, if we talk about the uh the conversational skills, how to, to use some of those like stuff that's in MI, which is asking open questions, how how can I use uh active listening skills in these conversations? I, I've got a different framework. To start practicing those skills if they're kind of held by this awareness and this understanding that allows for the nuance of everyone's life and tailoring them to what my situation and my loved one and our relationship is and i and I think it's the reinforcement aspect of craft and others that get lost in the conversation you know I always think about a a garden and if we were gardening, and I know the metaphor isn't exact, but if as a gardener, if I wanted to respond to the weeds, and my response to that is to cut off all watering, right? then the flowers I want to nourish are not going to thrive as well. Everything will, over time, just wither. So, reinforcement on the parts of my loved one, aspects of my loved one that I still want to support, that I still want to nurture is really important in all that and that gets lost in the conversation of of that somehow it's i only can see my loved one through the lenses of this one behavior and if i do anything to support other things i'm right. doing something wrong and and that's a hard one too and that's where the awareness and the understanding provide a framework for thinking about well what is the utility of of still staying connected and using positive reinforcement to support the change process. And those action tools are really the communication and the the behavioral strategies we try to help people think about and tailor to their circumstances.
0: Yeah, definitely like changing the tone I think is so critical and being able to do that makes these other very behavioral-based things like communication, active listening, all this other stuff, fall in a different way. And yeah. land in a different way, and i I think your analogy is great, and i I think that's you know like yeah, if you starve the garden of water, everything's dying, and as human beings, I just don't think we change that way. We need nurturing, we need support, we need to know that other people are there for us we're We're social animals, and we we need each other, and that's the best way in which we can change or or have change.
1: Oh, totally! It's such an important point. We are social it's 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 interactions with other people that are so critical and it always raises that question why is why is so many of the narratives of more about isolation and cutting things off and removing social interaction is somehow the way that change is going to happen and it seems contrary to like you said how we're wired it, it's It's our relationships that help us see us. And help us do the hard work of change.
0: Yeah, I always say we, we never heal through shame. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Shame is about disconnection ultimately. And we are social animals and we we heal in our social environment. So if we're incorporating shame into that, I, I just don't think that's going to be lasting long-term deep change that will come from that.
1: Yeah, and it's pervasive, I think, right, that just not only shame for the loved one struggling, but the shame that's heaped on families Yeah, um, for being in that situation. And, and it's just um, it's crushing. It's crushing.
0: It, it is crushing. And I think, you know, being able to talk about it, and I think as families, more and more families can talk about it and find support and, you know, find community, that's how we're going to help with this crisis of, of addiction
1: yeah totally and it is a crisis right i mean that's for sure you can just see how it's it's building the momentum is there and how many lives are touched by that is incredible
0: yeah absolutely ken i am so happy that you came on the podcast to share some of your wisdom and some of the wisdom from your book i think it's so important because families can feel so lost out there and not even know where to turn or what to do. So offering them this new way of, of looking at this situation, this problem, uh, this concern, I think it's just, uh, what, what a gift. So thank you so much for coming on. But before we go, I always like to ask one question. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, we're not done yet. <laughs> if maybe there's, there's someone who has a loved one out there and they're struggling and you could tell them one thing, what would you want them to know
1: oh, one thing okay that's a that's a challenging question and I'll it probably talk something in there if I'm coming to the back door i th- I think the one thing is there's hope as a family. your relationship is important there's hope in You're caring for your loved one, the relationship you have with your loved one, and that doesn't have to be left at the door. And in that hope, you don't have to be alone. That's kind of the back message. Part of the hopefulness is that uh, it may feel isolating and lonely, but there are resources and there are ways to help you stay connected and get support in the process of, of loving your loved one. Awesome. In this difficult time,
0: Awesome, I love that. How can people find you? how can if they want more information, where can they where can they get a hold of you?
1: Sure, my colleagues and I are part of a not- for profit arm of Center for Motivation and Change. It's the foundation for change, and uh, doctors uh, Wilkin and foot my, my colleagues have really tried to put together a whole resource hub for families. To not feel isolated and to get compasses and scaffolding to support them in, in going about helping their loved ones, so you can find us at cmcffc.org. dot I org when mean, there's a whole host of resources and a community and opens a door to to being able to step in a community that um, has lived experience and at the same time is in your corner so
0: awesome they find it helpful. and and if they want to know more about your book where can they find
1: that uh, the book can be at, at the cmcffc.org it's also on Amazon it's a new Harbinger publication so it's also on new Harbinger's uh, website as well so the FFC website Amazon or new Harbinger's Great. way
0: to uh, hear about the book awesome and I will put all the links as usual in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com ken thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom and your passion for for helping
1: well thanks for the platform Dwayne, and uh for just uh taking us where we went today i appreciate the conversation
0: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As usual, all the show notes will be at addictedmind.com So check them out. And if you got a lot out of this episode, please share it with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you use so you can get all the updates on the next episodes. And if you want to continue the conversation, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, and click join. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode.
1: It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol.